Before I get into the message, I just want to thank you for your prayers, your many expressions of loving care for me and Gwen and our family at the uh, passing of my father. I also want to thank those of you who uh, made the trip to Medicine Hat to support us as a family. All those expressions of love and care were, really weren't expected, but um, they did touch us deeply. Shortly after my, my dad's passing, someone asked me how I was doing, <clears throat> and I said, well, down through the years, you know, I've sat at the bedside of many people who were dying. But when the people in that bed, it, it, when the person in that bed is your dad or um, your mom, which in my case <clears throat> was a year ago, the emotions run a lot deeper, not only because of the lifetime of memories that come to mind, but because you realize that here lies one of the few people on the planet who loves you so much that they'd be willing to die in your place. And being a father myself, I understand that. I'm convinced that this is what makes saying goodbye to our parents so hard, for even though they are not perfect, and even though they have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly in us, their love for us is reflective of Jesus' unconditional love for us. And in life, the list of people who love you like that is pretty short. And over this past year, my list got shorter by two special people. In my mother, I lost one of my greatest prayer warriors. And in my dad, I lost one of my greatest supporters. And they will be greatly missed. But thanks again for your love and expressions of care. Okay, for those of you who are here today for the first time, or tuning in for the first time online, or from one of our regional centers in Airdrie, Bridgeland, and Crowfoot Theaters in Northwest Calgary, we're working our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which we find in Matthew 5 to 7. I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5 right now. And as you're doing that, I'm going to give a little background to Jesus' teaching here. In his sermon, Jesus has been describing those who are part of his kingdom and saying that Christianity is more than just depending uh, and, and just doing the right things on the outside. While our, outright, our outward behavior is, really matters to God, he first and foremost is concerned with what's going on in our heart. And to help us understand what he means by this, Jesus gives several examples here in Matthew 5 and 6. In chapter 5, verse 21, he focuses on the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And he essentially says, you may think that you're keeping this commandment perfectly because you haven't actually murdered anyone. And that's a good thing, but I tell you, murder doesn't start with a knife or a gun. Murder starts in your heart and mind when you allow anger and resentment to fester and to grow in your life. In verse 27, Jesus says, the same is true with respect to adultery. Adultery doesn't start in a cheap motel. No, adultery starts in your heart and mind when you allow lust to grow and have its way in your life. Now, I want you to keep that in mind as we now look at the third example that Jesus gives here on divorce because it is key to understanding what Jesus is actually saying about divorce. For divorce, as we're going to see in a moment, also starts in the heart and in the mind. And so would you stand with me as we read this passage together, beginning verse 31. 
It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, there are a few subjects that evoke more painful emotions than the one Jesus brings up here in his sermon. And Lord, I pray that you would soften and calm our hearts and that you would help us not only to understand what Jesus was saying in this passage, but that you would help us to apply it to our lives in whatever way the Spirit would have us to. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we get into this particular passage, it's important that I make a few comments first. To begin with, as I just prayed, I am fully aware that there are few subjects that evoke more painful emotions than the subject of marriage breakdown. Researchers tell us that there are almost as many divorces as there are marriages these days. And so I think I can say with a high degree of certainty that there are few families represented here that have not been impacted by divorce. Divorce is painful for the partners that are involved, uh, for any children of the marriage, and also for siblings uh, and parents. I take no delight in knowing that the topic of this message will surface hurts and emotions in some of you. I'm dealing with this subject this weekend because I'm committed to doing a systematic study of the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, even verse by verse. And as we just read, the next example that Jesus gives in his sermon here in Matthew 5 is that of divorce. And he takes us, in doing so, he takes us into all the feelings and the pain surrounding it. The focus of this message is not about heaping guilt on those who have already suffered divorce, but to help us to understand what Jesus is saying here and to challenge all of us, whether we're single or married, to honor God's ideal for marriage going forward. And so even though this topic may make you feel uncomfortable, I would ask that you would have an open mind to what Jesus wants to say to you and that you would have the courage to hear the entire message, not only this week, but also next. Because I believe if we come to a teaching time like this, in a worship context like this, with an open mind and with a soft heart, that God will speak to us. Furthermore, whether you are divorced or not, I want to remind you that, that Jesus' teaching here comes from a heart of love and concern for each of us. Jesus came so that we might live life to the full. He wants our marriages to be rich. And like any loving father, he wants to spare us of the pain of the breakdown of a marriage, of divorce. And that is my desire as well. While I'm committed to always being faithful to teaching, the truth of God's word without compromise, my heart's desire is to speak the truth in love. I am well aware that I often fall short of God's ideals. And so I don't speak as one who has it all together, but as a fellow sojourner who needs God's grace and forgiveness like everyone else. And so with that in mind, let's look at Jesus' third example here on divorce. Now, as I alluded to earlier, it's important that we understand right up front that Jesus' purpose for bringing up divorce at this point in his sermon was not so much to teach on the subject of divorce, 
as it was to use divorce as another illustration of how God looks first and foremost at what is going on in our heart. You see, starting verse 27, Jesus talks about what adultery is, the ways that we commit adultery. He doesn't change the subject in the passage that we just read a moment ago when he talks about divorce. In verse 31, Jesus is actually giving another way that people commit adultery. And so to kind of summarize all that, between verses 27 and verse 32, Jesus is saying there's actually three ways that you can commit adultery. One way that you can commit adultery is outwardly, when you are sexually intimate with someone who is not your spouse. Secondly, you commit adultery inwardly through unbridled lust. We talked about these two last time. And then in verse 31, Jesus gives a third way that a person can commit adultery. And that is by actually divorcing one's spouse in order to marry and sleep with the person that you're lusting after. You see, at the time that Jesus spoke these words, the world was in danger of witnessing the almost total collapse of marriage in the home. We often think that we have moral chaos today in our world. Well, you need to know that in the times of Moses and also in the times of Jesus and most of the time in between, there was moral chaos back then that uh, equaled to today, if not worse than today. In Jesus' day, many of the men were lusting after women who were younger or more attractive or more exciting than their wives. But being good religious types, they were trying to figure out a loophole to fulfill their lustful desires without breaking the seventh commandment, which is you shall not commit adultery. Well, human nature being what it is, where there is a will, there is always a way. And the boys of that day, sad to say, found a way to play like many do today which is not bad poetry, wouldn't you say? <sighs> okay, where were we? Yes. Yes, the men in Jesus' day found a loophole. In most cultures of that day, a woman had virtually no rights at all in the eyes of the law. She was seen more as property than as a person and was totally dependent and controlled initially by her father and then later by her husband. Well, the men of that day took full advantage of this. Rather than be uh, unfaithful to their wife and therefore be guilty of adultery, they came up with a lame excuse to justify divorcing their wife, and then they married the woman that they actually wanted to sleep with. And as perverted as this sounds, let's not kid ourselves. Truth be known, this is happening big time today. And Jesus essentially says to the people of his day, but also to the men and women of today who are similarly motivated, he says to all of us, externally, you may fool others into believing that, um, that you are justified to divorce your spouse and to marry this other person. But you are not fooling God because he knows your heart motivation and in his eyes, you have committed adultery. In God's eyes, you are as guilty of adultery as the person who stays married and yet is sleeping with someone other than their spouse. 
You may fool others, but you cannot fool God. This is the essence of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5. Now, Jesus' teaching didn't sit well with the religious leaders because they knew they were divorcing their, their, their wives for any and every reason. And so a little later, if you turn now to Matthew chapter 19, they challenged Jesus regarding the meaning of Moses' bill of divorcement, which Jesus references here briefly in Matthew 5, 31. But turn to Matthew 19, and I want you to look specifically at verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, the certificate of divorce that the Pharisees were referring to in this verse is found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And it reads like this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Now, I want to draw your attention to the first sentence in this particular passage. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. Now, as you can well imagine, the phrase something indecent about her lent itself to multiple interpretations. William Barclay points out that there were two schools of thought um, on the matter in Jesus' day. There was the school of Shammai and there was the school of Hillel, both of which were named after famous first century Jewish scholars. The one was conservative, the other one was liberal. The school of Shammai was strict and believed Moses intended the word indecent to refer only to sexual sin and nothing else. In other words, a man could only write his wife a bill of divorcement if she was guilty of adultery or some other blatant sexual sin. The school of Hillel was liberal. It was broad-minded and said, Moses' use of the word indecent meant anything displeasing to the husband or that a husband could essentially divorce his wife for almost any reason. Now, human nature being what it is, guess which school of thought got the most votes from the men of that day? Well, of course, the liberal one did. And that included the religious leaders. Imagine that. The Pharisees, they'd get all upset with Jesus and his disciples over proper hand and foot washing rituals and what, was, what constituted, constituted work on the Sabbath, but they had no problem. No problem at all divorcing their wives on a whim. And as a result, men were soon divorcing their wives for a number of so-called justifiable reasons, and you ladies may want to note some of these. One of them was if she was an incompetent cook, <laughs> burned his food, or spoiled it with too much salt. Another one was if she went into public with her head uncovered. A third one was if she talked to men on the streets. And the fourth one was if her husband was more pleased with the looks of another woman. 
Now, these are the kind of lame excuses that men of that day were using to justify divorcing their wives. And so Jesus, in effect, says to them and to anyone today who might, have, might be doing something similar or thinking something similar today, let me be very clear, says Jesus. The reasons that you're using to divorce your spouse are unacceptable. God knows your heart. He knows the motivation behind you divorcing your wives is nothing more than out-of-control lust. So hear me clearly, says Jesus. Now I want you to look at verse 9. Matthew 19, verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality on her part and marries another woman commits adultery. Well, the Pharisees really didn't like that answer either, and so they tried to defend themselves by drawing Jesus into the controversy surrounding Moses' bill of divorcement. In verse 7, they said, So why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus clarifies that Moses didn't command divorce. He simply permitted divorce. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard but it was not this way from the beginning Jesus is essentially saying that God recognizes the reality of divorce and the certificate of divorce that Moses established but nowhere does God or Moses ever command or sanction or approve of divorce in fact Malachi 2:16 says that God hates divorce but he permits divorce. Now you ask, how could God permit something that he hates? Something that he sees as wrong? Well, as difficult as it is to believe, God permits what God hates. For example, God hates sin. But he permits it. If he didn't, he would have ended Adam and Eve's life immediately. If God didn't permit sin, he'd wipe us all out right now. We wouldn't be here. In the same way, God hates divorce, but by his grace, he permits it. It is not his ideal, and he warns us about taking sin lightly because there's always a cost that comes to sin, whether we recognize it or not. But God allows it. God permitted Moses' certificate of divorce to prevent or at least slow down the total collapse of the home and the flagrant abuse of God's ideal for marriage. So how did Moses' certificate of divorce slow down the deterioration of marriage? Well, first of all, Moses' legislation made divorce a more formal and serious undertaking in that day. For it actually required that a husband give a written bill of divorcement in the presence of two witnesses. All of this would have slowed down the reckless, impulsive whims of the men of that day, brought some control to this almost out-of-control situation. Secondly, Moses' legislation made husbands count the cost of divorcing their wives. One of the costs was, as we read in Deuteronomy 24, that if a man divorced his wife, he was not allowed to marry her again. This, perhaps more than anything, made a man aware of the seriousness and the finality of divorce that he couldn't just simply walk in and out of a marriage as he pleased. Thirdly, Moses' certificate of divorce served to protect the dignity 
and the livelihood of women. At the time, it would be assumed by the community that if a man sent his wife away, it was because she was unfaithful to him and she had committed adultery. The certificate of divorce actually required the husband to write down the reasons for sending her away and in particular stipulating that she had not committed adultery. This was critical because without a husband to provide for her needs, as I said a moment ago, a woman in that day would have been destitute and would have had little recourse but to resort perhaps to prostitution. A bill of divorcement stating that she was not an adulteress would have made her far more eligible for remarriage. It also forced a man in that day to realize that his wife was not a piece of property to be thrown about at will but in God's eyes, was of equal worth to men, which gave dignity to the women of that day. And fourthly, Moses' bill of divorcement actually severed the original marriage relationship. God permitted the woman to remarry, and her second marriage was not considered adulterous. Notice in Deuteronomy 24 that the second man she married was called her husband and not an adulterer. John MacArthur says, in every passage that talks about divorce, not about separation, but about divorce, remarriage is always assumed. It's assumed in Deuteronomy 24, in Matthew 5, and also in Matthew 19. It's always assumed that when someone is divorced, they are free to remarry. And so to summarize, here in Matthew 19, Jesus says to the Pharisees, God through Moses never commanded divorce. He only permitted it because of the stubborn, selfish actions of sinful people. He instituted the certificate of divorce to prevent the total collapse of God's ideal for marriage and to protect women of divorce who were innocent victims of their husband's um, lust-centered actions. But, says Jesus in verse 8, it was not this way from the beginning. He turns to the religious leaders And he essentially says, you know, your focus is totally in the wrong place. Your lust has so preoccupied preoccupied you with divorce and wanting to justify easy divorce that you have no understanding of how sacred marriage is in the eyes of God. And in verse 4, Jesus takes them back to the very beginning, back to God's ideal of creation and marriage. And he says this, look at verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus says God's original blueprint for marriage and for sexual intimacy was one man with one woman, male and female, joined together in a permanent union until death parts them. This was God's ideal for marriage. And in saying this, Jesus was also saying that divorce was never part of the original blueprint for the home. Marriage is the creative act of God. There are two, 
And then the two are joined together in marriage by God himself. And at that point, they are no longer two, but one in God's sight. Now, a couple may believe that this is all their own decision-making. And to a degree, I suppose that's true. But when they decide to marry, in a mysterious way, in the spiritual realm, God glues two people together, spiritually, physically, and emotionally. A spiritual transaction, a covenant, is made in the eyes of God, and two become one flesh. Now, please don't miss this. When a couple marries, something new has entered the world that never existed before. There is a new reality, a one flesh reality that has been born in the sight of God. In the same way, when a child is born to that marital union, a new life enters the world that never existed before. The two become one. The marriage itself has a life of its own, one that is known and one that is valued by God. God sees the life of a marriage on the same plane as a human life. And that is why in the Old Testament, if you murdered someone, the punishment was death. But you see, here's the interesting part. If you ended the life of your marriage by committing adultery, the punishment was also death. Now, the Romans, in the time of Jesus, refused to allow that to happen anymore. Even back in the time of Moses, the bill of divorcement often took the place of that. But initially, that was what God said. And you see, it gives us a graphic, visual understanding of how much God values marriage and how much he hates anything that defiles or ends a marriage. And that's why Jesus issues a warning here in verse 6. What God has joined together, let no man separate. You can't take something that God has glued together and separate it for just any flippant reason. And friends, this is why single people need to be careful about jumping into marriage flippantly. Or having this attitude, well, you know, we'll just give marriage a shot. And if it doesn't work, we'll just end it. Because from God's perspective, marriage is a covenant. And God takes covenants very seriously. You see it all the way throughout Scripture. And when God glues you together, the breakdown of a marriage and divorce tears and rips up your soul like nothing else. And this is why casual sex outside of marriage often referred to today as friends with benefits. Or what some singles consider to be nothing more than pleasuring each other on the same plane as giving each other back rubs may seem harmless, but it messes you up. Because through sex, in God's eyes, you connect at the soul level. There is no such thing as casual sex. For sex is more than a physical union. It is actually a metaphysical union. It's a soul union. And sex outside of marriage tears and rips a piece of your soul and goes with that person. And in time, depending on how many partners you've had, pieces of your soul are all over the place. Now, make no mistake, and I want to be very clear at this point. When you sincerely surrender your life to Jesus Christ, God can and will put your soul back together again through his redeeming grace, his miraculous power to heal. But apart from that, I'm telling you, casual sex will mess you up. And it will impact your relationship with God, with others, and particularly with your future spouse. 
You see, we're not just talking about a man-made deal here. We're talking about a God-made deal here, a covenant made in the eyes of God. And so Jesus takes the Pharisees back to God's ideal. And he says the original match was simple and clear. One man with one woman joined together in perfect union for life. Marriage is precious in God's sight. And his original intent was that it be a permanent and an exclusive relationship. And so with that vivid imagery of the sacredness of marriage and of how God sees marriage fresh in our minds, in the little time that I have left now, I want to direct my closing comments and applications to four groups of people. First of all, I want to challenge those of you who are single to hold high God's ideal for the permanence of marriage. If you are contemplating marriage or you're hoping to marry one day, it is important that you know what you're getting into. Marriage is God's gift, but don't enter into it casually. This is why here at Center Street, we insist that those that we marry meet with, pastor, with a pastor, meet with marriage mentors, and take our marriage preparation course. And this is also why we won't just marry anyone under any circumstances. It's not that we don't love and care for people. In fact, it's precisely because we care about people and the future health of their marriage that we want to hold high the sacredness of the marriage covenant and God's ideal for marriage. And so before you decide to marry, I challenge you to seek the Lord in prayer for his confirmation. And also seek the wise counsel and confirmation of godly people who know you both. And as I indicated in my last message on adultery, I challenge you to focus, to make the focus of your primary attention on exploring each other's minds, each other's characters, each other's spiritual walk, rather than exploring each other's bodies. Honor God's ideal for marriage by keeping yourself pure for the person you'll be marrying one day. You see, over the years I have observed, when a couple first begin to date, they often have a case of, of, of serious love sickness. They, they sort of go brain dead. And by that I mean they, they often lose their objectivity. They tend to see only the good in the other, and they're kind of blind to the character issues and the personality issues and the habits and communication and financial and family issues that could put significant strain on their marriage, but they refuse to go there so often because their focus is on, you know, getting to the altar, getting married, and they have this airy-fairy idealism that their partner is almost perfect, right up there with the Trinity, you know, you know, can do no wrong, and that they're going to have this Hall of Fame marriage. You know, I can't tell you how many young spouses who come into my office, you know, a year or two later, sometimes a month later, and they're very defeated and how they wish that before they got married, they would have been just a little more objective and they hadn't been in such a rush to get to the altar. They've told me they wish they had listened more to the concerns that their friends and their parents were expressing to them about their relationship. All that to say, hold high God's ideal for the permanence of marriage by slowing down a little bit, taking a deep breath, 
Being open to God's confirmation and the input of others, godly people that you respect. Now to balance this, I'd also like to caution you from being so paranoid and so fearful of selecting the wrong partner that you never have the courage to make a commitment in marriage. If you've been dating someone long enough to to get a good sense of their walk with God, their strengths, their weaknesses, their personality quirks, you've met their family, you know their friends, godly people who know you both affirm your relationship and you are ready spiritually and financially and vocationally to take on the responsibility of married life, then unless you both agree to drag this on for many, many more years, I really suggest you make a commitment to marry. And if you can't do that after two or three years or so, set the person free. Don't drag it on forever. That's just not right. And ladies, I'm just going to be real frank with you here. If you're wondering why many guys today seem not to want to commit, human nature being what it is, and I've gone back and given you human nature over the centuries, human nature being what it is, if you're offering yourself to your man sexually, and I'm not saying this is the case in every instance, but in those cases where this is reality, you know, the man in your life, if you think about it, really has no reason to commit to you in marriage, at least not until having children becomes important to him. And a lot of guys don't really get serious about that until They're in their late 30s, mid-40s. I mean, think about it. He has all of the benefits of marriage without any of the responsibilities, the freedom to keep checking out the options, and the freedom to leave the relationship with little or no cost to himself should he meet someone else. Now, when I challenge women with this, a typical response I get is, well, you know, he's going to leave me if we aren't sexually intimate. Now, I should point out that apparently men aren't the only ones making these kind of threats these days. I've had a number of men over the last few years tell me when they have sought to honor God's standard for sexual purity, often the woman is offended, convinced that he doesn't find her attractive, and often wants nothing to do with him. I mean, that's mind-boggling to me. But regardless of whether it's the man or the woman threatening to leave the relationship because one of them wants to honor God's standard for sexual purity, my question to them is this. What does that say to you about the nature and the depth of their love for you? I mean, a love that isn't committed to the future isn't love at all. You see, there are all kinds of consequences that come when we go our own way. When we decide that we're going to, you know, we're going to just make up our own rules and ignore God's standards. There's all kinds of costs that come that way. And we come to a place, the Bible talks about, where what is right is seen as wrong. And what is wrong is seen as right. And then a word to those of us who are married. Let's hold high God's standard for the permanence of marriage by doing all that we can with God's help 
to making our marriage all that God wants it to be. Regardless of what challenges we may face, let's not waver from the vows that we took on our wedding day to be faithful to one another in our mind and in our behaviors until death parts us. Let's communicate to those around us at work, at school, or wherever it is we find ourselves. Let's, let's, let's communicate through our words, in our actions, and in the way that we dress. I'm off the market. Don't even think about flirting with me. I intend to be faithful to my spouse. Let's stop dreaming about what life might be like with someone else. And instead, pour thought and energy into creating our own romantic story with our spouse that's based on reality rather than fantasy. And let's not settle for a mediocre marriage either. Let's invest deeply into our marriage to make it rich and satisfying. A marriage that makes others get on their knees and pray, Oh God, give me a marriage like they have. Can you say amen to that? Let's set the bar high for our marriages. Before we speak, before we act, before we respond to our spouse, let's ask ourselves, will my words, will my actions, will my attitudes strengthen my marriage at this point or will it hurt it? Let's use every opportunity we can to tell one another through our words and through our acts of service, I love you, I treasure you. And let's do that without expecting anything in return. Let's treat our mate as we would have our mate treat us, respecting each other, building each other up rather than tearing each other down. Let's affirm and encourage one another to be all that God created us to be and believe the best about one another's intentions rather than the worst. When we hurt the other or when we've been hurt or when we sense something isn't right between us, even if it's some small thing, let's not let it linger and fester and grow into resentment, but let's be quick to get at the root of the problem and make it right by asking forgiveness and forgiving one another. And let's protect our marriage by keeping God at the center of our marriage, by praying and reading God's word together regularly, by attending church regularly to worship, but also to grow in our understanding what God's word is saying to us today. And by being in community with a small group of other people who are passionate about Jesus and his call in our lives. And if our marriage is undergoing strain, or is in trouble, let's be transparent and open and humble enough to, to admit that we're struggling and to ask those that we trust in our small group or perhaps a pastor that we know uh, or someone in our church for help. In short, let's hold high God's ideal for marriage by doing all that we can with God's help to keep our marriages healthy. And then a word to those who would judge. Holding high God's ideal for marriage means that when we become aware that a couple that we're close to is struggling in their marriage, that we will not judge them. We won't start wagging our finger at them in disgust. We will not gossip about them, but we will lovingly, passionately point them to God's ideal for their marriage and challenge them to find a way through rather than a way out. We'll be prepared to stand by them, to support them, to pray for them without ceasing, to pray with them 
and to do whatever we can to help them believe God will do a miracle in their marriage. Holding high God's ideal for marriage does not mean that we treat those whose marriage has failed as if they have committed the unpardonable sin. Even if, like the men in Jesus' day, they divorced for unbiblical or for flippant reasons. You see, friends, and I say this with, with great reservation because I don't want to minimize the seriousness and the high cost of divorce or, or leave the impression that we are free to divorce for any and every reason the way that the Pharisees did. But the fact is, adultery and divorce are not the unpardonable sin. Yes, they are terrible sins because they inflict such deep emotional scars in the lives of all those who are involved. But we really don't understand the grace of God if we can't forgive someone else of this failure. Now, down through the years, I've known people who have been so judgmental of the divorced. But then I've also noticed that they suddenly, in some cases, became very quiet and suddenly began to talk a whole lot more about grace rather than judgment. And then I found out it was because one of their own children ended up either separated or divorced. And they ended up there because they were married to someone who created a totally unsafe environment in the home due to physical and sexual abuse. Or some, they were married to someone who, who just verbally badgered and criticized and demeaned them so badly that they were just an emotional wreck. Or who was so controlled by their addictions that they were just completely irresponsible. And it would lead their family into financial ruin and chaos. All that to say, church, oh, please, let's do all that we can to fight for our marriages. Let's do all we can to help one another fight for our marriages. But when every prayer has been prayed and every attempt to restore the marriage has been made and the marriage still dissolves in divorce for reasons we may think are unjustifiable, let's join God in realizing that because of sin and because of the hardness of people's hearts, Divorce happens. And when a divorced person stops running from God and from the church and turns around and repents and comes back home, let's embrace them with the same love and grace that we ourselves have received from Jesus. I mean, don't we all know couples who face the upheaval of adultery, but instead of following through with divorce, the other spouse extended forgiveness and grace and healing occurred in that relationship and since then their marriage has not only survived but thrived. Don't we all know divorced people who suffered and continue to suffer many of the consequences of their unfaithfulness but who, like King David, at some point stopped running from God, stopped pretending they hadn't messed up and they came to a point of grieving and repenting of their part in the divorce. They submitted their lives anew to God. And once again, they experienced the joy and the freedom of the Lord in their lives and were used by God to impact the lives of so many others. 
Let's have the same attitude that God has in Malachi 2, where it says he hates divorce. And folks, so must we in the same way that we hate injustice or anything else that's wrong in our world. We must hate divorce so much that we will do everything in our power not to let it happen in our marriage or in the marriage of someone that we know and love. But even though God hates divorce, he loves the divorcee. And church, so must we. And then finally, a word to those who have suffered divorce. Unless you are a callous, uncaring, and unfeeling person, I know you have wept many tears, and you are hurt, you are hurt deeply over your divorce. If you are a victim of divorce, meaning you didn't want the divorce, I want to remind you that you are not invaluable. You are not inferior to the person your spouse chose over you. You are a precious child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's what my Bible tells me. And as his child, your identity is based on who you are in Jesus not on the basis of what others think or say about you. Don't let Satan defeat you. On the other hand, if you're the one who instigated the divorce for something other than biblical reasons, as unfortunate and as pain-inducing your action was, I want to remind you as well that God's grace is greater than your sin. Through the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, you can find forgiveness and start all over again if you humble yourself and come to Jesus. God forbid anyone should ever think that they have sinned themselves outside of the grace and the love of God because of adultery or divorce. As some of you know, and I'm going to close with this, even though as individuals my parents had many remarkable qualities amazing qualities their marriage fell apart when I was a teenager my dad he felt shunned by so many people in his church that he concluded that God had given up on him too and so for many years he just lived like the prodigal convinced that he could never come home for years, he felt totally unworthy to pray. He believed that he was not worthy to go to heaven when he died. And for years, I tried to show him from the scriptures over and over again that apart from what Jesus did on the cross for every one of us, none of us is worthy or capable of going to heaven in our own strength. And it wasn't until about seven to ten years ago or so when he finally believed that through God's grace that he was acceptable to God and worthy to go to heaven when he died and also to come back to the church. What a joy it was to celebrate his homegoing. I mean, his life for me is a definition of God's amazing grace. To celebrate his homegoing, knowing that, that he knew he was acceptable in God's sight, not because he lived perfectly, but because he put his trust in the perfect one, Jesus, 
who was acceptable and is acceptable in God's sight. Folks, listen to me. God doesn't want us running from him the way the prodigal did for a long time. God does want us to humble ourselves and to come back to him and sincerely acknowledge and grieve over our sin and the hurt that our sin has created. But having done that, he doesn't want us to wallow in guilt and shame or to crawl into a hole of isolation because we have sinned. You know who wants that? Satan does. He wants to make you think that God won't forgive you. That his promises don't apply to you. He will whisper in your ear on a daily basis that others are looking down at you. That going to church or or becoming part of God's family is hypocrisy. You know, friends, Satan will do whatever it takes to keep you from staying close to God and from getting close to God's family. Because his mission is to destroy you. But don't listen to him. Please don't listen to him. Listen to God's word. He loves you. Reach out to him no matter what you have done in this life. Repent and keep walking toward Jesus. Jesus died to make eternal life possible for all of us and also for us to live this life to the fullest. I plead with you. I plead with you to live in the victory of that truth. Now, there's one more group I'd love to address today, and that is those who are struggling in their marriage and perhaps even contemplating divorce. But I'm out of time. And so next week, we're going to quickly review this message, and then I want to talk specifically to those who are discouraged in their marriages and perhaps even contemplating separation or divorce. Even if you're single, even if you've got a great marriage, I challenge you to be here and to encourage anyone that you know who's struggling in their marriage to be here as well. Just for your information, we're offering a special eight-week video-based course called Boundaries in Marriage at our West Campus on Center Street starting Thursday at 7 o'clock. It's for anyone who wants to understand God's purpose for marriage and to grow in their understanding of how to have a healthy marriage. Whether you're divorced, married, or single, you're welcome to attend. Would you please... Stand with me for closing prayer. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for sending Jesus, and I want to thank you for your amazing, amazing grace. But for your grace, Lord, every one of us would be so unworthy. But because you came and you died on that cross, Lord, we are worthy. We are worthy through faith in your son, Jesus. Lord, I want to pray that we as a church would reflect 
your grace to others who are hurting, to others who have gone through the agony of divorce. That this would not only be a safe place, Lord, but this would be a place of healing. Only because your grace has transformed us. I pray for those who are struggling in their marriages, are discouraged. I ask, Lord, that by your spirit, you'd already be giving them a sense of hope. That you already begin to work in their lives, whether they're here or not. And Lord, that there would be those who would be here next, next week. Lord, whose lives would be changed forever because of the power of your word and the power of your spirit. We pray this all in your precious name. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.